0: So last week I mentioned that uh, about 15 years ago I was in Kenya for a a consultation and I stayed for uh, a a week in order to look around. I'd not been to Nairobi before and and, uh, I arranged to do some things and one of the things that I arranged was to go spend a day and a night in a Maasai village. In the same way that the Babylonians had taken some young boys, in this case, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and had brought them into a tutorial program so they would eventually be able to be intermediaries between the Babylonians and the Jews. The Kenyan government took some, uh, a boy out of every village back in the 60s as the Republic of Kenya was, was forming uh, in the 60s and 70s, they would take one boy out of every village, bring him into Nairobi for education, so they could then be an intermediary between the uh, the government of Kenya and these Maasai tribes. And the, the man who uh, I spent some time with had been one of those boys. So he was my age at the time. He worked as an airline mechanic, uh, but given an opportunity, and, and several of us went together and, and sort of... Contracted with him to take us. It was a, it was an hour outside of Kenya or of Nairobi that we left the road and then four hours by jeep back into the bush, during which time we saw giraffe and zebras and ostriches. I mean we we're we're out in the we're out in the wild. Uh, he took us to the village that he had grown up in, and the first thing that he did when we got there is um, he took out his weapon, which was a uh, rungu, which is this is a root that they carve and they use these. They always have one of these. They can hit you with it. They can throw it. Uh, he had a Rungu. He said, it's, it's unthinkable that an adult male would be barehanded. Uh, so he handed me a stick. And he said, you have to hold on to this stick. You have to have this weapon at all times. And several times during the course of the day, I would forget and I would put my stick down. And I would be reprimanded every time. You've got to have your weapon. Okay, so... End of the day, finally, uh, I am going into this little um, cement shack. Uh, the the Maasai, again, it's all about the cows. The cows are, are held during the night in the center of the village. The, the, the homes, the huts that the Maasai live in are made out of straw and cow manure. And because the cows are right there, the flies are everywhere, so they... They always are burning a very smoky fire in these small huts to drive away the flies. I'm like, yeah, I know, I can't, I can't do that. So I'm, I am staying in this, uh, in this tool shed out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's there's, you know, it's, it's, there's just a, there's a dirt floor, there's a, there's some cement bricks, and there's a, a, a roof on top of it. And as he takes me in there, he, I said, "Can I put my stick down now?" And, or do I sleep with it? And he says, no, 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 you'll set it right here by the door. And that way, if any lions come during the night, you can run out to defend the cows. And, <laughs> and I did exactly what you're doing. And I said, right. He goes, no, no, no I'm serious. And I said, yeah, no, not going to happen. First of all, I was told that the that the lions were all in Tanzania or somewhere right now. And that I wasn't going to run into any lions. So I'm not thrilled to hear that I might... There might be some lions prowling around. I go, secondly, if you think that in the middle of the night, in the pitch black, I'm going to run out with a stick to defend a cow, it is not going to happen. And he, he said, it must. And we sort of got into it a little bit. He says, it's a, it's a matter of honor. And I said, well, you know, I think the honorable thing for me to tell you is, don't count on me <laughs> if the lions are there. He got a little mad. I offered to pay for any cows that died during my watch told me I was an ugly American, I said, well, you know, it's the way we roll. So anyway, (laughs) thankfully, no lions came during the night. It was never really resolved, but I didn't have to go out and and defend the cows. So today, we are thinking about the topic of courage. Uh, I am arguing that Daniel and his friends exhibited character that we would like to have, bravery. Now, you might think that I have disqualified myself from speaking about courage. And that's very easy for you to say because it's very unlikely that any time today, next week or next year, you will run across a wild lion that is coming after you. Uh, The fears that we live with would be public speaking, right? So if I were to ask someone of you to come up here and finish the uh, talk, that would be a very fearful thing for you. Or uh, if somebody stood up and said, hey, there's a snake in here, right? Lots of people would freak out because public speaking and snakes are high on the list. Heights and trips to the dentist also make up the list of American fears. So it's not that everybody's so incredibly brave. As a pastor, I have found that people tend to be uh, frightened of other things, of cancer, uh, of loneliness, of um, of general vulnerability in in light of a world that seems to be getting more complicated and difficult to figure out. Uh, I'm not certain what level of fear you live with. Uh, I have had two episodes of fear as an adult that, that really sort of got my attention. <clears throat> I don't have a lot of fear, but 20 years ago, I was minding my own business by myself at a building... I uh, got on an elevator. As the door was closing, I suddenly panicked. And it never, I'd never even thought about it before. But as the door was closing, I just felt you know, like I, I can't do this. So I lunged and I stuck my hand in the, the elevator door so that it would hit it and then open back up. And I got out. And I, I chose to climb the eight flights of stairs. And then for the next couple of weeks, I was just avoiding elevators. Until finally I decided, this is, this is crazy. I can't live this way. I have, to, I have to figure out what's going on here. I called my brothers. I have uh, brothers who are seven years younger than I am, identical twins, identical, identical. So my dad couldn't tell them apart through high school. They have identical engineering degrees, identical MBAs. They are interchangeable in almost every way. One of them has a slightly better golf swing than the other. But other than that... They're pretty identical, and they're engineers, and they build design uh, service elevators. So I called them, and I said, okay, I've, got, I've developed this phobia. What are the odds that you know an elevator could fall? I think that's what I'm scared of. And they said, zero. They go, we pack elevators with lead, disconnect the cord, and he goes, the brakes kick on so quickly, we have to get a micrometer out to measure how they've fallen. He goes, you are always safe in an elevator. To which I said, well, you know, I didn't have any problems with elevators until it occurred to me that you guys are building them. And that's when I started to freak out. Then a couple years ago, after I had uh, a stroke, I, for the first 10 days or so, I really couldn't move, but I was being moved all the time. So I was in a hospital bed, and then they'd move me to a gurney, and they'd take me to an MRI, and they'd have to move me onto that table. I just kept getting transported all the time. And I was really frightened about being dropped. You know, it was an irrational fear. I was never being you know, over a floor. I mean, I was never going to fall. But I was completely incapable of helping myself if I fell. And I just had this overwhelming, this, these, these anxieties that really got my attention. Some of your anxieties are small, everyday fears. Some of them are big and uh, overwhelming. I want, to, I want us to watch a short video of Brocky Murphy's on staff at Christ Church, as she talks about an episode she had a couple years ago. Let's roll this video.
1: Hi, I'm Brocky Murphy, and in 2013, February of 2013, I had a nervous breakdown. A full on breakdown is when you are completely non-functioning, when you are completely overtaken by anxiety and or depression and you absolutely cannot function in your life. You cannot eat and you cannot sleep and your mind is racing constantly. You literally cannot function. It was frustrating and it was embarrassing to reach out to the doctor, the nurses, even people in my community that just either didn't respond or just changed the subject. The thing that kept me asking for help is that I was terrified and I was desperate. And I knew that I was gonna die if I didn't keep seeking the help that I needed. The psychiatrist that I was connected with, he described it as a perfect storm. There were emotions and feelings and issues that I hadn't been dealing with for years and years and years that I had just been stuffing down. And this was God's way of kind of forcing that to to the surface and saying, it's time for you to deal with this stuff. It's yucky and you don't really want to deal with it, but you have to deal with it. I knew I was perseverant. I knew that if I kept asking, eventually I would find someone or multiple someones that could help me. Well, my husband was definitely a support system. He would say, you just keep moving through it step by step and eventually you will be through the forest. You will be on the other side. So just keep keep putting one foot in front of the other. I know people kept saying to me, God has purpose, God has a plan. He's not abandoning you. And I was sitting there thinking, but it feels like He has. It took a really long time. Um, and I don't remember when the moment was that I realized I had, that, I, that all of that was behind me, but when I did realize it, felt really good. I guess I'm amazed that he gave me the courage to get through it when I look back on being in that darkness. He, he gave me the courage, he gave me the strength to not take my life, to going forward.
0: So as I said, I'm not certain what level of anxiety you might be dealing with on a normal day. The, the, the challenge with the illustrations that we've used is that it sets it up as being really big cataclysmic events. And I want to I wanna suggest that there are fears that are shaping our behavior every day that are not big. There are fears that are holding us back from doing the things that we ought to do. Little decisions, perhaps, or big ones. And I think fear shapes us far more profoundly than we realize. And it shapes us more than hope does. And so we need to to understand this because it it clearly can hold us back. Now, uh, biblically speaking, the word that gets used here is the word stand. Uh, in Ephesians 6, this comes out. Uh, we are to stand against evil. We, we also see Martin Luther will use this term in his great moment. Here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. What, what we get from the Bible is that we are encouraged, and please note the word, we are encouraged uh, to do the right thing. To be brave, to be courageous and strong, to find strength in God to move forward, and to do the right things. And so um, I want us to look at Daniel and um, his friends for some counsel and direction that way. If you have your Bible, you want to follow along, it's Daniel chapter 6. Let me say a few things as we're setting this up. First of all, I knew when I decided to preach this series that, that I would have this problem, and that is that... It's easy to come away from a study of Daniel thinking that what we're being called to do is to be like Daniel, to dare to be a Daniel. And if we're like Daniel and if we have great faith like Daniel, the lions will uh, leave us alone and we can survive the fiery furnace. And it seems to be an implied promise, which I want to suggest is not there. Uh, First of all, we are not Daniel. Uh, Daniel was really, really, really exceptional. So uh, everybody else, for the most part, with the exception of Jesus, every major character in Scripture messes up. You know, Abraham lies about his wife and Moses loses his temper and kills somebody. And David is an adulterer and kills people. And, uh, you know, Peter, is, uh, Peter denies Jesus is sort of impetuous throughout most of his early life. Paul has problems getting along with people. They've all got downsides, except for Daniel, right? Daniel seems to do nothing wrong. So we're, we're not Daniel and setting the bar of being a Daniel is not necessarily healthy. I want to just say that the book of Daniel is in the Bible not to tell you to be a Daniel. Okay? The book of Daniel is in the Bible to point to Jesus. Right? It's, it's, a, it's part of the pathway through which we see God fulfilling the promises that he made back in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 12 that he was going to send a Redeemer. If, if the whole thing was about being a Daniel, right, then that would just be religion, classically defined. That you can manipulate God by doing some things or not doing other things and you're going to get your way. Okay, That's not the Christian faith at all. So I just want just to say we're Daniel is in here in large part to point to Jesus. There is a pathway in God's story and it leads us to Jesus. That said, uh, we can... Look to good examples for ways to live. And Daniel is a good example. And his friends are also good examples. And so we are looking to see how they pulled this off. Remember, they're just young kids, 12, 13 years of age, when their hometown falls. Jerusalem is overrun by the Babylonians. They are marched with everybody else as prisoners of war on a four-month march. 500 miles back to Babylon. At some point, they get pulled out, separated, and enrolled in this elite internship, in which they are are going to become like the the little Maasai boys. They're going to get educated so they can be conduits between these two groups of people. And uh, this was far better than being a slave, but it wasn't great. They were prisoners. So they're indoctrinated, they're mocked, they're pushed down, uh, they're, they're castrated, they're given new names. This is, they're prisoners being indoctrinated in Babylonian ways. And yet, they will remain faithful. They will be grow, grow to be men of great courage and stature and wisdom. And the question we're asking that undergirds this whole series is, if we're living in a time of transition which I've argued in the book that we are, some good things coming, some bad things coming, but mostly it looks like faster and more and a little bit more invasive. If we're living in a time of transition, how do we navigate that in order to be people of character and conviction and courage and bravery, people who advocate for the common good, people who help? So we're going to be reading out of Daniel 6, which is the end of Daniel's life. So the Jews fall, Jerusalem falls 586 B.C. For 47 years, Daniel serves a Babylonian king, a a series of them. In, In 539 B.C., the Babylonians fall to the Persians. So a new superpower comes, overthrows the Babylonians. Daniel survives the transition. He is retained by the new Persian king, Darius, as an advisor, Daniel is an exceptional guy. Everybody wants him in their cabinet, on their team. So this is at the end of Daniel's life. We're reading uh, Daniel chapter six. I begin with verse one. It pleased Darius, who is the Persian king, to appoint 120 satraps— their term for governors—to rule throughout the kingdom. It's a big kingdom. We have 50 governors. They had 120 governors. Big kingdom with three administrators over them. One of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so the king might not suffer loss. The king of Persia has corruption in his kingdom. He's trying to stop people stealing. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Again, Daniel is an exceptional guy. He's always getting promoted. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So all the people that Daniel is going to be promoted above, they don't like it. They want to pull him down. They go on a muckraking expedition. They're trying to find some reason to turn him in. They can't find it. Finally, verse 5, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So kings had lions, uh, sort of like British royalty used to have foxes to just hunt. Uh, they had lions to hunt, but also to feed people too if they got out of line. So Darius is going to come across as a flake. You know, King Darius, we want everybody to have to only pray to you for 30 days and may you live forever and da-da-da. They're just, they're, com- they're complete suck-ups. And it's, it's, and Darius is sort of won over by this. So they say, now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So they're going to appeal to this. this and throughout the book of Daniel, you'll see this contrast between, between the people who make up these rules and are self-important and suggest that they're boxing in God and they're boxing in Daniel. And, and then the stability and the wisdom and the stature of Daniel. Everybody else is all self-important and crazy-making. And Daniel's just level-headed and calm in the midst of it. And they are setting up these laws that cannot be broken as if God is somehow subject to their crazy laws. And, uh, and so, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed. Giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So he doesn't go out of his way to get in anybody's face, but he doesn't stop what he's been doing. He has a pattern in his life of of cultivating a relationship with God. He has spiritual habits or disciplines that, that, that help him grow strong stronger in his relationship with God. He continues these verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who praised any god or human except to you your majesty would be thrown into the lions' den? So, if you read Daniel 6 as I suggest or 1 through 6 as I suggested that you do, you know that Darius is not happy. He really likes Daniel. Daniel is very important to him. He doesn't want to see Daniel killed. But oh my goodness, he issued a decree that cannot be revoked. And so he's trapped. And so Daniel is put into the lion's den. And Darius is all upset about this. Daniel seems to be pretty calm and uh, collected about it. Uh, And the the Lord will, will close the mouths of the lion. Daniel survives the night. The next day, Darius comes. He's all anxious. You know, Daniel, did your God preserve you? And Daniel says, yes, he did. And um, so they lift him out of the lion's den, and then Darius has all the people that sort of tricked him thrown into the lion's den. They're all killed. And, uh, and this passage is a, is a big one. It, it's sort of used, preached frequently uh, for messages about bravery. And if you, were in, if you were in Sunday school as a little kid, undoubtedly you colored in a picture of Daniel and the lions. And it's just uh, everybody, everybody goes here. Uh, Early church also referenced this passage, seeing Daniel in sort of a a, a prototypical example of Jesus. Daniel goes down into the lion's den but emerges, and, and Jesus goes into the grave but emerges. So a lot has been written about this passage. I want us to use it to think a little bit more clearly about what Daniel and his friends did in order to cultivate courage and bravery. So let me just start by saying there are a number of things that we know about courage that we didn't necessarily learn from Daniel. right? There's just sort of some 101 principles about fear and courage. You can read these in any magazine uh, that you run across if somebody's writing an article about courage or fear. First of all, there's a difference between being fearless and being courageous. Okay, So fearless means you don't actually experience the anxiety. Most people who describe themselves being courageous say they would have far preferred to hide under the bed than respond the way they did. Right? So it wasn't that they didn't feel fear, but they they moved into it. Secondly it's worth noting that some fears are appropriate. Like being nervous around the edge of a cliff is is a good thing. But being scared of elevators is perhaps not a good thing. Uh, So uh, again, fears in the United States are about heights and dentists and public speaking. And, and uh, uh, there are some crazy fears out there. Some people are, fear, are fearful of sharks. Uh, so if you live in the Midwest, really unlikely that you're going to have any problems with sharks. Uh, most of us, the most, uh, the most dangerous thing we face on any given day is probably a French fry. That we shouldn't eat and it's actually, we're more likely to die of the french fry than a shark. You are more, about a thousand times more likely to die because a TV falls off the wall and lands on you than you are that you die of a shark. So there are appropriate fears and there are some inappropriate fears. There there are other things that we learn. There are different ways to try and deal with anxiety and fears. You can avoid it by taking the stairs and not the elevator. You can can seek medication to lower anxiety. There are are support groups. There's virtual reality ways that you can sort of uh, acclimate to whatever your fears are. So there's a whole bunch of things that you just know about fear and courage. The Bible comes along and gives us another set of data points. So it's worth noting that Jesus will say, his most common greeting, by the way, is fear not. That's the way he greets his friends, suggesting that there's a lot of fear out there and that we should not be fearful. Jesus will come along and say something very similar to what we find in the book of Proverbs. The refrain in Proverbs is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus will say in Matthew 10, do not fear him who is able to destroy your body and unable to destroy your soul. Instead, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. In other words, fear God. Now, we don't like that today. Uh, So most people have said, well, the idea of fearing God really just means respecting God. And there's an aspect of that that I think is true. But uh, I don't think that goes quite far enough. There's not enough of an edge on that. So there is a sense in which we are to be amazed, awestruck, have our breath taken away by our understanding of how big and awesome and powerful God is. So there are some things we can learn about fear and courage in the Bible generically. There is then some specific takeaways That we get out of Daniel. And I want to suggest that there are two that that you need to hold on to today. The first one is Daniel had the right perspective. Daniel is fearless. Daniel is courageous. Daniel does the right thing on a consistent basis. Because he has a right view of God. (laughs) He has a big view of God. And, and this will change everything. Now, I, I, have, I have suggested, and this is a dangerous word to use, so let me say I'm not talking about a second experience like in a Pentecostal sense in which we're filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe Ephesians 1 tells us when we come to faith in Christ, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that, but I, I would go so far as to say there's almost a second conversion that happens in your life. When you finally understand that God is God and you're not. So there's a, there's a time of coming to faith where you, my experience anyway, look to God, realize I'm in trouble, realize I need help, I need to be forgiven, I want eternal life, right? And I I reach out to God to help me. Then there's another experience in which you say, oh my goodness, God doesn't exist just to help me, right? God is God, and I'm not and and God doesn't exist for my benefit. I exist for His pleasure, and there's something so much bigger than me that is going on out there, and I need to I need to to, to, to change how I see who I am in light of what's going on and what God is going to do. It is a massive Sort of mind shift. It's a paradigm shift to realize that and to realize how big God is. <laughs> how majestic and holy and powerful and awesome God is. Our highest views of God, our highest thoughts of God are pathetically insufficient and small. If you get emails from me, uh, you will get an email this week in which I'm sending a six-minute video produced by some scientists that I found to be almost devotional in nature. So David says, uh, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, right? So the skies, the cosmos reflects who God is. This is, a, this is a video that just talks about the size of the universe, right? And, and I, I occasionally, I printed out a picture of the, of the Milky Way galaxy that I, I've got in my office. I, I look at it occasionally to remind myself, okay, the God I worship is more awesome in, than this that he created. This is hundreds of billions of light years big. And he created, he spoke it into existence. My problems are not too big for him. I mean, it's just, it's just my problems are small given who God is. And, and I'm not going to get pulled into, the, into the, the crazy talk and the panic that is going on around me by people who are making self-important laws. <laughs> when, when God is above all of that. God is God. We need the perspective Daniel had a perspective of God. And with that view of who God is comes an understanding of eternity. And eternity changes everything. If we're going to live forever, then then we don't fear death. Don't fear him who's able to destroy your body but can't destroy your soul. Fear him who's able to destroy your body and soul. Eternity changes everything. And we need to cultivate an eternal perspective. My dad got that late in life. And it was such a gift to the rest of the family. When, when we get the call, you know, he's got cancer, probably has four to six weeks to live. All the kids fly in to be there. And the first thing he says to me, says to us is, look, there is no bad ending for me. Please understand that. There is no bad ending. If I die... And I will, likely of this, likely soon, if I die, I go to heaven. I'm with God. That's a win. If I live, then I'm with people I love and I'm doing things that I enjoy. Either one is a win for me. There's no bad ending. I, I want you to I want you to understand that. And we can, you can have that sense of peace. And it's a game changer. All right. It's a game changer to have that sense of peace. I, I, you can't really do anything to me that is going to matter in light of eternity. My eternity is secure with God. So lower me into a lion's den, whatever. I'm not looking forward to that. But you got nothing over me. And, and this is the attitude that we see, not just with Daniel, but we also see it with his friends. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego early on have a similar scenario. Nebuchadnezzar. This is early in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has this huge statue built of him himself, and everybody's supposed to bow down and pray to it. And these guys go, "Not doing it. Not going there." And so Nebuchadnezzar blows the stat—you know—blows his top, and he says, "Okay, well then you're going to get fed. you're going to get thrown into this fiery furnace." And they go, "Okay, whatever." Um, Shadrach, this is uh, chapter three, verse sixteen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of, image of gold you have set up. So they say, Look, we have confidence that God will work this out. If he doesn't work it out in the way we hope initially, it's still good and we're not going down your path. We're not going to follow the crazy rules that you're setting up. So, the first thing that allows Daniel to be brave, courageous is his is his perspective of God. The second thing that we need to see in Daniel's life is that he cultivated this. All right? So, we see that there is a he has a he has a series of spiritual devotional habits in which he is turning to scripture and, uh, and, and praying every day and, and nurturing that relationship with God. I would submit to you, that's the genius of Daniel. I don't know whether Daniel was fearless in the lion's den or not. We're not really told that. I'm guessing he gets lowered down there, realizes the lions aren't gonna eat him, goes to a corner and probably goes to sleep. I mean, you know, it's, it's not like he wrestles him down. It's not like Daniel in the lion's den is brave. Who knows if he's brave? The genius of Daniel is that he had prepared right? He had cultivated that view of God, that relationship with God that allowed him to say, I'm good with whatever happens. And I want to say to you, you can be good with whatever happens. You need a diet of scripture. Joshua 1 tells us that we're to meditate on the word of God day and night, right? We're to memorize scripture. If the refrains going on in your head all come from CNN and Fox News. Then you're going to be angry. You're, you're going to be disdainful of other people, right? You're, you I mean, that is a that's a that's going to shape a different soul in you than will be shaped if you are if you are nurturing a relationship with God, which comes through Scripture. Um. This week I went to see the movie uh, Sully uh, about this pilot who successfully landed a, a passenger plane on the Hudson River. And uh, I, I was interested in going because I had heard an interview with him in which uh, he said, a lot of people think right, that you're brave because in that moment you decide to be brave. He says, that, that's not my experience. He said, I, I, I flew uh, fighter jets for the Navy, and then I have been a, a, a commercial pilot for 29 years. He says, I prepared my whole life for the 208 seconds uh, that I had after the birds took out both engines on the ascent. I prepared my whole life for the 208 seconds that I had to successfully land this plane. And he said, you, you need to understand that, that you have to make that decision well in advance as to how you're going to respond. So I would say to you, men and women, uh, I think the future holds some good things, some not so good things, a lot of fast. It's going to be imperative that you, you cultivate a, a strong inner spiritual world So that that world shapes what happens around you. And you're not shaped by the craziness that may be happening everywhere. With everyone running around saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. right? And it can be done. You can cultivate that kind of soul. But you need to understand, it is your decision. Nobody can do that for you. You are going to need to decide now that you are going to cultivate your relationship with God. And we know how this works. Uh, and so at, at, at this point, I just want to say, um, if you if you got these cards that we uh, handed out last week, if you filled out one of these cards, great. If you didn't, so starting tomorrow, we're going to be sending out by email uh, devotions, short little devotions. If you don't have a a daily devotional habit, this is an easy first step. We will send these out in about five minutes to read these. They're, they're tying with the sermon. We wrote them in-house. And uh, so you sign up with this. If you're not in a small group, intentionally investing in other people who love God and love you, doesn't have to be a Christchurch small group, although we'll help you start one if you're not in one. But if you're not intentionally walking through life with other people, who love God and love you and you are doing life together and they're checking in with you and they're paying attention to how you're doing, you need that. There will be a whole sermon, that's like four sermons from now, but you desperately need that. You can sign up for that here. You can use the back of the card uh, for prayer requests as well. Look, The way to be prepared for tomorrow, whatever it brings, is not to build a bomb shelter or buy gold or have, you know, five years of dried food buried in your backyard. That's not the way forward. The way forward is to pursue the God who is pursuing you. You can have a measure of peace in the midst of chaos. It comes, Daniel is our example. By cultivating a relationship with Him. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to start by praying for those um, who are here today with a good deal of angst about life. Often it's about children, could be about health, job security. There are many things that can uh, overwhelm us and stress us out, big and small. I want to pray, Lord God, that they would experience a measure of your peace. And I want to pray, Lord God, that we would see in Daniel an example of someone who sought you and who cultivated a, a, a deep walk with you. So that when the trials that are coming our way come, whatever they are, um, we can navigate those with a sense of assurance that you remain on the throne, that you're for us, and that this will end well. That, That eternity changes everything and that this ends well. Help us to have that sense of assurance and peace as we move forward. Guide us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.